Dr. Christine Crawford joins us on this episode of Bipolar Black Girl. Dr. Crawford's practice in Boston focuses on children who suffer from bipolar disorder and psychosis. She specializes in the effects systemic racism has on her young black and brown patients. Hello, welcome to this episode of Bipolar Black Girl. I'm your host, Mayor Fortin. This week, we hear from Dr. Christine Crawford. Dr. Crawford is an adult, adolescent, and child psychiatrist. She is currently seeing patients at Boston University Medical Center Child and Adolescent Outpatient Psychiatry Clinic. She is an assistant professor of psychiatry at Boston University, and um, she's written few chapters on mental health disparities as well as socio-cultural issues in psychiatry. She often speaks on systemic racism and its dramatic effect on black and brown youth. Hi, Dr. Crawford, welcome. Hi, thanks so much for having me. No problem, thank you for being here. Um, so to start off, if you wanna start with a little bit of your professional background. Absolutely. So as a psychiatrist, I have the privilege of being able to work with children, adolescents, and adults who may be experiencing some mental health-related challenges. And as a physician that sees patients who have mental health issues such as depression, bipolar, psychotic disorders, I first want to understand if there's any underlying medical issues um, that may be contributing to their overall mental health. And then from that point on, I also look at other treatment options that are more specific to mental health, thinking about medications, as well as treatment options. It's a really nice feel because I get to know people for who they are, yeah. rather than just looking at them as a particular condition or a diagnosis or an abnormal lab value. I really have an opportunity to understand what people's stories are, the way in which they live their lives, and I help support them in getting all the tools that they need in order to be social and emotionally well um, so that they can thrive. So it's a really nice uh, field of practice, and I wish that more people uh, were interested in pursuing this line of work. Yeah, um, my doctor is, um, is non-Black, and she's very helpful. Um, she's gotten me through a lot of years, and um, but I do often wonder what it would be like to speak to a, um, a doctor who looked like me. Yeah, and you know, when I was thinking about which specialty to go into when I was in medical school, for a long time I thought about becoming a family medicine doc and becoming a primary care physician. But what I realized is that there are only 1% to 2% of psychiatrists that are Black. And I figured I could have much more of a greater impact by being a black psychiatrist because I had never met one when I was in med school and in all my training. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, if children are able to see someone who looks like them talking about mental health, if adults and parents of these children are able to talk about their emotional well-being and feel comfortable doing so because they see me, there's a thought that I can understand or relate to the experience, even if it's just opening the door and initiating the conversation, that's a lot more than for some folks who see someone who doesn't look like them, there's this automatic assumption, you won't get it. So why should I even bother to open up? Right. Um, I grew up in the 80s when um, there was not a lot of talk about um, mental health, and there was none, basically, about mental health in the Black community. And um, suicide rates were much lower 
than they were than they are now. Is that because they were underreported, or what other um, factors have contributed to this rising um, suicide rate? Yeah, I think it's a really great question because it's deeply concerning and alarming that people are experiencing such severe distress that they have to take matters into their own hands. And what we've learned over the years that especially when it comes to our young black and brown kids, they're at a much far greater risk of engaging in suicidal behavior. There was a study that came out a few years ago that found that children between the ages of five to 12 who were black had two times the suicide rate compared to white kids. Now let that sink in. We're talking about five to 12 year olds. That's right? amazing. That's crazy. Yeah. And so some of these thoughts and ideas are occurring at a young age. But the other thing that's been happening is that we're starting to do research and investigate suicidal behavior. What are the factors that contribute to the development of some of these thoughts, especially at a young age? We oftentimes before this would assume, oh, that's like a a problem if you're old, white, unmarried, and you're a male. And so a lot of the research for a number of years kind of focused on an older demographic. But it's really been the last few years. It hasn't been that long that we've really been examining how young some of these thoughts begin. But then also I'm worried about our young women of color too. They're another group in which we're seeing, especially women in their 20s, the rates of suicide are, are going up. And so a lot of people ask me, why is that? You know, is it because of this current social political climate? Is it because we're better at detecting it? People are getting help and we're able to intervene sooner? I think it's a lot of different factors. But what I also think is that there's more of an awareness of possibly some of the causes of death too, you know, and people probably weren't talking about it before. They would say, oh, so-and-so passed away, you know, um, it was an unfortunate situation. But I think people are being a little bit more open and honest about the struggles that people are facing. And I think it's helpful because it's allowing folks to see that it's a more common problem than we had initially thought. Um, but I really think it's important for our people of color who, you know, for many, 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 many years, the thought has been, oh, we're strong. We can pull ourselves up by the bootstraps. We can pray on it. We can persevere. We're resilient. But we need to know that untreated mental health conditions, ongoing distress, can have negative and severe consequences. And we need to be real about that conversation. Absolutely. I wasn't diagnosed until um, my mid thirties as being bipolar, uh, bipolar one. But I clearly remember feeling manic, like at two, you know, like, mm -hmm. and just having, the, like I would spend my days at school being manic or just masking it. And then my nights at home crying myself to sleep. So it was just like this rapid cycling every day until I just couldn't take it anymore. Um, so I would, early intervention obviously would have helped me. So, so what are some of the signs or symptoms that you can look for in your, in your children that are that young? 
Yeah, so when it comes to bipolar disorder specifically, what's interesting was that there used to be a lot of controversy in diagnosing bipolar disorder in, in kids. Um, and a lot of that has to do with the fact that kids are developing, they're learning how to regulate their emotions and their behavior. And so there may be some evidence of more extreme erratic behavior that folks initially didn't want to label as being consistent with bipolar disorder. But the reality is, like what you had just described, you had symptoms of mania. So what I'm looking for when it comes to children and adults is number one, your mood state. Oftentimes when we talk about mania, people think about having elevated mood, you're happy, you're on top of the world, nothing could stop you. But also we see people who are quite irritable. And it's the irritability part that oftentimes is mistaken for something else. And that's why we see a lot of black folk being misdiagnosed with bipolar disorder because they're missing that key mood state feature. It doesn't have to be, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm super happy, excited. It's the irritability that's super important to take note of. But then also people, when you talk to them about their thoughts, the speed of their thoughts are just going so fast. They have a lot of amazing ideas, big ideas that may seem somewhat out of character for this individual. And then also we see that, and especially when I talk to some parents of kids, um, they'll notice, yeah, Jack was just talking a mile a minute all the time. was talking really fast. And I, I noticed there was this period of time in which the speed of his talking accelerated. What I also see that we cannot overlook is sleep. Now, people want to poo-poo sleep and think that, well, everyone has some sleep problems. But when I'm looking for someone who's experiencing a manic episode, they're having um, a lack of need for sleep. So they can go several days without sleep and still have a ton of energy to do all the different activities that they want to do. Right. And in speaking of activities, there's a lot of activities that they want to do because they have the energy and they have lots of thoughts and ideas. So I think that, you know, for a lot of people, it's hard to kind of piece all of these different symptoms together. But if you notice this pattern and this change in how someone is presenting, it's important to ask some questions, especially if you notice that it's interfering with their ability to function. Right. Okay. Um, And we touched on this a little bit, but can we talk a little bit about uh, the stigmatization of mental health in minority communities? Mm -hmm. I think what's been fascinating to me as a psychiatrist working during this period of time that covers the COVID-19 pandemic is that I've been able to witness this shift in how we're talking about mental illness. There's more conversations, open conversations about the difficulties that people may have in terms of their emotional states. People are talking about anxiety and depression. However, I think that there's still a lot of stigma when it comes to more serious and more severe mental health conditions like bipolar disorder. Mm -hmm. I do think that there's still a stigma as it relates to bipolar disorder because there's still a lot of unknowns about what that actually looks like. People can relate to the experience of depression and anxiety, and especially during the pandemic, everybody was talking about that. But it's hard to identify with someone who has big ideas about, you know, 
ruling the world and wanting to all of that stuff, right? It's hard to identify with that. But then also there's a lot of stigma with the treatment options too. We are not very comfortable talking about treatment. There's been a shift in talking about therapy and the helpful, um, how helpful of a tool that is. But we also, for some people, medications also one of the tools that they have in their toolbox. And I do think that there's a tremendous amount of stigma around that. For some people, it's helpful. For some other people, it is not. But we still should think about um, kind of the language that we use when we're talking about certain folks and the type of treatment that um, they happen to engage in. Right. Yes. I take uh, many, many pills to control my um, bipolar disorder as well as ADHD. Um, so, uh, and that affects my my mood as well. Um, the ADHD does. So um, let's, I wanted to know, um, what ha, you compared uh, growing up black and brown in the U.S. to being akin to wearing a sticky suit. Can you explain more what you meant by that? Yeah. So whenever I talk about the impact that trauma, racial trauma specifically, the impact that it has on black mental health, I like to use this visual of a black person wearing the suit and they put on the suit from birth even pre-birth while they're in utero they are wearing this so everything that the person who is carrying them um, experiences in terms of trauma in terms of racism that sticks with them and there's a physiological response because there's stress right right and the baby feels that stress and experiences that stress so then you step out into the world as a baby and you're experiencing discrimination. Your family is experiencing discrimination, racism, microaggressions. And we know this starts at a very young age. If we look at preschoolers, we know that when it comes to preschool suspensions, over 50% of preschoolers who get suspended are black. Now, help me understand this. Why are preschoolers getting suspended, number one? But why is it that for behavior that would be labeled as typical behavior for a white kid is problematic for a black kid. And so that starts to stick with you and it weighs you down physically and mentally. That's why we're seeing high blood pressure, obesity, diabetes, these chronic medical conditions, because the weight of all of the trauma related to racism, it just wears your body down. And then mentally there's the exhaustion from all the anxiety that you experience when you step into a new space of people who don't look like you, um, the sadness and the depression of the opportunities that are lost just because of the way that you look, and that sticks with you and weighs you down. And I know that people talk about progress that's been made, but we see intergenerational trauma and we see the impact of that. And it's gonna take a lot to, to break this cycle, but there needs to be a full appreciation that living in America as a black person has a significant impact on your physical and mental health. Right. And and how do we break that cycle? Like what steps can we take? I think one of the important steps to take is for us as individuals to not kind of gaslight ourselves into thinking, oh, maybe I kind of made a big thing out of a little thing. Maybe 
maybe they didn't mean anything by that comment or, okay, I didn't get picked for this position. I don't think that really was anything. I think what we need to do is to kind of remove the denial that systemic racism exists by calling things out. And people have been doing a great job calling things out. But I also think that some of our other folks who aren't Black need to be as good at recognizing and calling out any form of systemic racism. Because oftentimes it feels like whenever there's a problem that impacts the Black community, whether it's about health, whether it's about finances, housing, that is a Black person problem, right? Right. But this is the problem that impacts us all, right? right? Because if Black people aren't doing well, then we know Americans aren't doing well. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Because this country was made off of the Black backs of Black people, right? Absolutely. Um, So we got to just call it out. We can't second guess ourselves if we had a particular experience and think, oh, is it racist? I don't know. No. Because the stress of that and the energy it takes to figure it out and to do all these calculations, that also wears you down as well. Right. Yeah, I was socialized uh, in a very sort of white way. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Like I went to white schools. Most of my friends were white. Um, So I had to deal with that sort of, you know, being in white crowds, being like a kind of just like super wary in, you know, white crowds. But then I also, because, you know, I'm light skinned, had issues or black people in the community, I feel had issues with me and I didn't really get to know my own people until I went to college as an adult, you know? So um, I do, I, I do understand the differences, you know, in those in those two worlds and how, you know, some people do need to step up more. Some people do need to call it out more and, and recognize it for what it is. And I mean, all forms of, of racism and colorism included. Yeah. And colorism is a is a big one, too, because oftentimes there may be this assumption as a darker skin individual that the lighter skin person had it much more easy, you know, but. The thing is, we are social beings. We like to feel like we belong. We like to feel like we connect with other people who have similar experiences. And the thing is, when you feel as though you can't connect to your own people because you're a shade lighter, I mean, that's also another form of trauma. You know, it's so important for us to all, you know, find ways in which we can connect around these similar experiences, but I feel like colorism really creates this rift, right? Right. Um, For us to all kind of um, come together about how hard it is, no matter, you know, the the color, but it's, it's, it's certainly a challenge and has been for quite some time. Yeah, I think, I mean, I don't feel uh, as stigmatized by my color these days Mm -hmm. as I did growing up, you know, Mm -hmm. because it was definitely it was definitely more divisive, you know? And I think that, um, you know, that for me, it just meant it was coming to me, coming at me from both sides, you know? So it was, it was very difficult to really know who I was. Right. Right. And that sticks with you too, you know, and, um, it informs just your experience of, of the world, you know, going back to that sticky suit analogy, you know, that was a stressor that you had to deal with for many years. Right. 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 
Um, and so even though things have changed since then, you carry that with you for a while, so much so that you're still able to talk about it in detail, right? I imagine you're able to recall specific and yeah. Oh yeah, exactly. and a lot of it I think also had to do with, I have a, my bachelor's and master's in African-American studies. Um, I think that not knowing my people contributed to maybe me feeling like there may have been sentiments that weren't there. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Because, mm -hmm. you know, when you're only taught a certain thing, you start thinking, oh, well, this is right. Do you know what I mean? And I grew up in an era with a lot of gang activity and a lot mm -hmm. of like news, you know? And it was mm -hmm. just like, you know, they were just kept pointing out, oh, look at all these black people killing each other. Look at all these gangs, look at all the, you know what I mean? And it was just like, oh my God, like, <laughs> I don't want any part of that. You know, but people still look at me and know I'm black, you know, yeah. so it's like it was hard for me to figure out how to be how to fit in, really. Right, right, right. And that kind of reminds me of during the time of the pandemic uh, with the Black Lives Matter movement. And I'm thinking about our, our kids who were stuck at home mm -hmm. just watching the TV on social media their whole world is already flipped upside down because of the pandemic and the loss of a sense of normalcy. But then the news repeatedly was talking about black people dying at the hands of police officers. Yep. And then there were news of people protesting, supporting this statement that black lives matters. And kids are seeing that there are a whole bunch of people who have a problem with that statement right. and trying to make sense of this, right? right? Like, I don't understand why people like me who look like me don't matter, but then also there's all this negative attention to um, the, the riots and they think that like, that's all that is about right. when it really is a much larger message, right. you know? And if you're seven, eight, nine, ten, you're trying to make sense of all of this while you're also trying to make sense of you exactly. and your blackness right. too. It's such a hard time for our kids. Right. And part of the reason too why, you know, black and brown kids increase rates of mental health problems during that time. Right. Um, among many other issues during that time as well. Yeah. Well, thank you, Dr. Crawford. It was very nice speaking with you. I feel like we um, learned about a lot about um, psychiatry and in in communities of color and um great thank you thanks thanks so much for having me this is a lot of fun thank you awesome thank you once again thank you to dr christine crawford for explaining how the trauma of systemic racism affects black and brown bipolar patients thanks to you for listening please don't forget to hit subscribe